Welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Hey there, podcast listeners. I hope you're enjoying On the Record with Furniture Today, one of my personal favorite podcasts. I'm Charlie Maloof, President and CEO of Broad River Retail, operating Ashley Home Stores in the Carolinas in Georgia. I'd like to share with you why I'm such a big fan of Storis. With Storis, we have not only increased sales and opened several new stores, we have also grown customer satisfaction by reducing the time to complete orders by 80%. We have achieved this by continuously building on our use of technology since our launch nearly five years ago by taking on new technology initiatives like mobile point of sale, finance application queue, and CRM, we have elevated our guest experience, increased conversion rates, and boosted employee morale. Visit stores.com today to elevate your customer journey. So welcome to On the Record. My guest this week is Neil McKenzie, Director of Marketing for Universal Furniture. Um, hey, Bill. Good to be here. Thank you. In the chair. In the chair. That's right. You are in the chair. Um, so most people in, in the industry know you from Stanley and for your time at Universal, um, but you actually come from uh, the golf business. You've had two different stints where you were involved in the, in the golf industry. Yeah. So my career uh, got started. Um, I interned with a small advertising agency in, in Greensboro called the Burris Agency. Um, that internship, three-month internship, led to uh, a real job, a uh, full-time job at um, Mullen, uh, which um, at the time had just uh, was based in Winston-Salem, still is. They have an office there and an office in uh, Massachusetts, which is where I'm from. And um, the Winston-Salem office had just won the Wachovia bank account, and it was an opportunity to, uh, one, uh, actually have a, a job and begin a career. So I went over and started working for Mullen. And I was there uh, working on their retail banking business um, and was there for about two and a half years and then had a job, had an opportunity for a job to go back to Burris and, and work there. Um, and inside the Burris agency, um, we kind of specialized in golf and home furnishings. Um, golf I knew a lot about, or at least from, and had probably more of a, an appetite to want to learn more about it. Uh, and home furnishings was not really that aware, uh, even though I went to school down here and stuff. You, just, you know, it wasn't really an industry at the time where people, there was a lot of exposure to what exactly is that. Um, so at Burris, uh, we did, uh, we had a number of different golf brands kind of in our portfolio and, and Stanley Furniture was a, a client of ours that I had worked on and did work on and with uh, for, for quite some time um, through a number of different initiatives. Um, so I want to talk before, we'll talk about Stanley and Universal and all of that stuff, but I'm curious um, about the golf experience just because I'd like to kind of juxtapose and compare and contrast. Yeah marketing in that environment versus marketing in the furniture environment. Sure. What was it like, um, you know, doing marketing in, in the golf industry? Are you well, involved with Golf Now? Which yeah. Is, right, the yeah, so golf, yeah, so I, I worked for the Golf Channel and Golf Now, which is much more technology driven. So I'll kind of start uh, with some of the more traditional brands. So uh, worked on uh, Pinehurst, Pine Needles, uh, Jack Nicklaus uh, golf equipment. Um, Soft Spikes Club Car, Yamaha Golf Car uh, Company, 
um, and a couple in between Golf Pride. So um, there's actually a lot of similarities uh, to the golf business on the retail side and furniture. Uh, you have um, you know golf courses, which are kind of like independent retail stores. Uh, you have big chains um, like a Golf Galaxy or something like that that might be a, you know Dick Sporting Goods, and then you have um, e-commerce players uh, like Carl's Golfland or TGW Golf, you know things like that. So you have all these different kind of places for the consumer to shop, and then you have equipment companies that now also can sell you directly, and then you have um, boutiques kind of popping up in the golf industry that specialize in custom fitting, uh, club champion, true spec, these companies that will, you know, you're gonna spend quite a bit, it's almost like working with a designer, and you're gonna get totally custom fit for exactly the right set of clubs, but you're gonna spend, you know, maybe $400 just to be with them for a couple hours, and then, you know, you're probably gonna spend two or $3,000 on the equipment that's been totally fit for you. Uh, so it depends on what kind of golfer or customer you are and where you want to go shop um, and how you know each of those brands goes in terms of you know attracting and retaining those customers and kind of getting them in their own funnel so for the traditional um, you know for the traditional marketing I mean there's just a lot of different things that, that we we did uh, for each of those brands depending on what they were trying to do some were more b2b focused some were b2b and a little b2c um, and then uh, in the golf channel, uh, working for a golf channel and golf now, uh, that was really totally different. So you had this huge media entity that had tremendous reach, a built-in audience that was working with independent and I'd say multi-course operators um, to take something as simple as a tee time and just get it on a platform um, where people would see it, kind of like an open table or an Expedia, or, you know, but it was for tee times. And it was a way of just kind of comparing what's out there if you weren't a, a member of a private golf facility. And some markets where there's just a huge demand or seasonal, um, you know, that worked really well. And, um, you know, that's been a business that's continued to evolve and thrive. And at the time when I was there, they were really bringing not only the ability to kind of connect the consumer with the tea time inventory, but they were bringing this total suite of you know, solutions to the local golf course operator who may not have the scale to do so. So food and beverage resources, technology resources, uh, back-end accounting, you know, T-sheet, just all this stuff. So it was really interesting to kind of see how, you know, a huge entity that was really more of a marketing company and a media company could then have all these different kind of capabilities to allow, you know, an independent store or a golf course to, uh, you know, to operate and, and run their business and, and kind of leverage some of the efficiency as a scale as a, a large entity like Golf Now or Golf Channel. Now, that tends to be a very branded business. I mean, I don't mm -hmm. think a consumer, a golf consumer, has any difficulty rattling off any number of brands in that business. Ironically, in the furniture business, retailers typically want to be the brand themselves. Right. How do you, how did you manage coming from one environment which was highly branded um, to an environment that was much less branded. How does uh, the marketing equation change there? It's uh, it's hard because I think at the at first you need to you know um, I think at first there's a little bit of shock in terms of well why wouldn't you want to use you know and then you kind of each market is really different and I'd say over time that's evolved and part of it is um, you know at least where 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 I sit you know from a universal's perspective I think you know we've we've done a lot in the last you know four to eight years where there's some equity now where we're definitely not a consumer brand nor are we ever going to be a true consumer brand but I think through things like 
social media and database marketing and some things that we can control, the retailer begins to see benefits of, well, you know, or, or relationships we have with like a coastal living, for instance. Well, there's no reason that you would ever want to debrand something like that. And in many cases, we may not let you. Um, so um, in those instances, I think when they begin to see some of the things that we're doing, um, they see that, all right, there is some equity here with the name. How can we leverage this? Maybe not all the way, uh, but I think through different channels, there's opportunities to kind of, you know, lean on what we're doing and make it work in their local marketplace without, you know, disrupting kind of how they run their business or, or you know, creating confusion for somebody that walks in the store. I think on the other hand, we, we have heard is that many times customers are maybe seeing something on social media, they're seeing an email, they're coming to our website, they're walking into the store, and then it's like, it's this weird song and dance of, well, I thought this was like a universal blah, 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 or a coastal living, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then it is, we just don't call it that here. Okay, well, well that doesn't make any sense really to the end consumer because they don't, you know. So I think that's kind of changing. It probably depends on kind of the, you know, what kind of equity is associated with the brand and, and maybe what, you know, we as a brand manufacturer are doing for the, the retailer to allow them to kind of maybe give them that choice or flexibility to, hey, we're going to leverage it here. We're not going to play it up here. But I think, you know, more and more, you know, through the internet, you know, the world is flat. <laughs> so um, it's kind of hard to put smoke and mirrors on that as it maybe it used to be, I think, you know, 10 years ago or so I could, you know, it was really hard to kind of find out maybe what was what. So I think that's kind of evolved a little bit where, you know, the consumer can kind of find out what they want to find out if they really want to find it out. So. Um, and I think if you can put more information in front of them and just, you know, kind of let the best experience win at the retail side, I mean, that's kind of what our job is, is ultimately to drive somebody into the store and, you know, may the best store win kind of thing. And in certain stores we want to send them to because they're doing X, Y, and Z that if you're looking for that particular product, that's going to be the best experience for you. And then, you know, another store down the street might have a different experience for a different set of products that we want to send somebody to. So it just kind of depends. And every market's different. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, politics a little bit. Everything's local. <laughs> so I think we, you know, we try to um, allow, I think, our our retailers, you know, we just want to give them as much stuff. And, and ultimately, we want them to use that stuff at a local level to hopefully, you know, connect with the end consumer. So let's talk about that stuff. Yeah. There's a lot that's encompassed. There is a lot of phrase, stuff. Right? That yeah. stuff. Some of that stuff's expensive. <laughs> and, and, well, and also, um, one of the through lines of your career has been involvement in the digital space and the technological space. And that's a real challenge today for furniture retailers, right? They're having to compete against Amazons and Wayfarers yeah. and direct to consumer guys who, have, um, who are not constrained by the need to be profitable in some cases. Mm -hmm. um, who have all kinds of VC funding to support enormous customer acquisition costs, and they have to kind of compete in that arena um, in this world that is essentially yeah. flat, as you say. I think that's another good comparison to golf. So um, if you're a golfer, you kind of know, you know what might be like the local Muni or the dog track, or then you have you know the places that are the you know, ooh, that's like super uber nice and you want to make sure that you've, you know, pressed your shorts or what have you before you go uh, or certainly tuck into your shirt. Um, so I think each of those, um, you know, golf courses, you can't be all things to all people. Um, so I think, you know, ultimately they kind of need to choose what do we want to be? Uh, what are we going to stand for? And um, I think depending on, you know, the resources and the scale of their business, um, you know, I think they do need to choose. Are we going to be this or are we going to be you know that 
Um, and I think really every, every business has to kind of figure that out. I think it's impossible to try to do everything. Um, and, and part of that's going to be, all right, what, what goods are you going to carry inside the store? What's that store experience going to be like? I think the fact that you have a physical place for one to walk in, that's an opportunity to create, really, uh, you know, certainly a touch point for somebody to come in and experience something that you know, they're not going to maybe get online in front of a computer. Uh, and I think you see a lot of different businesses, certainly some that have started online that are now opening up you know, storefronts uh, do that. They create those experiences. Uh, you know, a Warby Parker, a Bonobos, a clothing company. Um, you know, Anthropology does a great job, and they do a lot of everything under the sun. Certainly, you know, Apple uh, and Apple stores is, are these destinations. But there's there's an experience that each can offer, and and that's not to say that you know a, a small you know, mom and pop furniture store is going to be an Apple store, but okay, what is it that they can really own that's authentic? And it might be something that's just authentic to the area that they're in, uh, that they can kind of offer a different spin on something that is unique. Um, and that's just like the golf course in terms of, you know, how that all works. So I think, you know, understanding kind of who you are and who you want to be, I think that's kind of the first step in, in, in making that work. And then kind of putting some of those digital tools uh, to work for you, whether that be you know something as simple as your website experience or you know what you want to begin to do in social media, which is another you know thing I think that has you know it's created an opportunity and probably confusion at the same time for you know a lot of um, you know uh, stores, retail stores is um, and really everybody I guess in terms of like well, what do we want to do here? How do we want to use that? Is that you know it's not. It's not your circular print ad anymore. You it's know? not <laughs> transactional. When it, when right. you, if you look at traditional retail communications, it's um, very much focused at that bottom piece of the funnel. It is. Right? It it's, is. It's conversion. Uh, and that's still important because you ultimately, and that is the goal with all these things, is to drive to drive a conversion, to drive that customer to to you know purchase something. Um, but it's an extension of really maybe kind of some of those things that you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis that it's almost like bringing your in-store experience online. Um, and certainly you can do that with, with imagery and storytelling and video and, and there's all different things. And I think you know, technology has really aided somebody's ability to do that. Um, you know, we're sitting here recording off of an iPhone. <laughs> so, I mean, everyone has something that they can capture content on. I think it's just a matter of, okay, again, trying not to be overwhelmed by, oh my God, where do I start? And how do I go chip away at all this stuff? But you know, what is the what is the plan? Who who am I? Who am I trying to be? What am I trying to convey? And then just kind of you know building kind of a plan of attack. And I think, you know, on our end at Universal, we try to help uh, you know support that effort. You know, with with different content creation and stuff where people can hopefully, hey, if, you know, once you kind of understand who you want to be, how can I go lean on these assets and stuff and kind of put them into my into my mix? So. How has the internet and social media marketing, digital marketing, changed the type of content that well, you would produce? Yeah, I think it definitely. Um, when we go, you know, I think we try to address a lot of different. Um, you know opportunities throughout the year when we go shoot different things so you know different product shoots but I think you know there's there's opportunity for content acquisition really in building almost a content library um, you know to allow a dealer to kind of lean on that and some of that might be built off of a promotional calendar uh, some of that might be just a seasonal calendar I mean there's something happening every month that you can kind of you know build something for and for allow people to kind of lean on I think we try to make our content as authentic as possible to who we are as a brand um, but can be you know flexible enough for a retailer to, to lean on that accordingly in their local marketplace without it seeming you know too heavy-handed you know it needs to be 
I think, flexible enough to kind of work for everybody. But I think it, it really allows everybody to almost like, you know, a newspaper or a magazine, you know, think about how they're approaching really, you know, their, their plan um, to get all those things to kind of work together. And it's just, it's a different, it's a different bucket, really. Um, and that's kind of where, again, you can get totally overwhelmed, I think, in terms of, oh, my God, where do I start with, you know, Instagram, Snapchat, you know, Facebook, Twitter, you know, uh, you know do we want to have Pinterest. a blog, Pinterest, Vimeo, you know, YouTube, my YouTube channel, and all this stuff going on. It's like, can you, do you have the capacity to support all of those things? And before you just try to do everything, I think you really want to think hard about, okay, Let's let's kind of you know walk or crawl even before we walk, and then you know okay, what are the things that can work? And then what's so great about all these tools and why everybody I think you know why you should love them is that they're all measurable. Um, so certainly you know print is that certainly not dead. We do a lot of print, um, but there's different reasons to do that. And you know I think if you're you know depending on the market you're in, I think it's a matter of okay, I can't do everything, how am I going to pick and choose these things that make sense for me, you know, to, um, to ultimately have an impact on getting that conversion with the customer. Uh, but it is the, it's kind of that, it's finding that right mix. Um, so it's not, it's not rocket science by any, by any means, but I think it just takes a lot of, it takes time, it takes some trial and error. You need to have kind of the, you know, you know you're going to fail, not everything's going to work, so you need to be prepared for that, I think, as well. And, and I think, you know, I know at, at companies like ours, you know, we're, you, know, you kind of set expectations accordingly and you try to communicate as best you can in the sense that, hey, not everything's going to be perfect, but you know, ideally you're trying enough things where it doesn't look like you're totally falling flat on your face <laughs> when things don't work. So, One yeah. of the things that, it, that seemed to be early on in this stage is that uh, the philosophy was hire a millennial, find a millennial in your office, yeah. can do it part-time. That's a misperception, isn't it? This oh, is, I mean, this it's is a full-time time job. Time. Yeah, we have some millennials in our office, thank God. So they've taught me a lot about how uh, Instagram and, and uh, you know Snapchat and things like that work. Um, and I'm not a Snapchatter just yet, but I think my daughter knows more about it than I do. And she's eight. Um, but yeah, I think they they're living it. And, and they are certainly the consumer of tomorrow. So I mean, I think it's interesting to kind of get their perspective on on these tools and they've I mean they literally have grown up with them as opposed to you know somebody like me it's it's been kind of interspersed but you know I went to college and there was no Facebook you know uh, you know there were certain things just kind of getting started around that time but it wasn't like we were fully connected you know socially I went to a college there were no cell phones yeah uh, my I, first typewriter in college was a manual yeah so. I had a daughter my daughter uh, and my wife and I were having a conversation about cell phones because she wanted to know when she was gonna get a cell phone and she's she's eight so I said, well, I got my first cell phone. I was 19, and it was a flip phone. She was like, what's a flip phone? You know, so, yeah. I, I think there are young people today who won't understand. I mean, I've heard stories of people who have two- and three-year-olds, and they walk up to the television oh, she and does. to swipe. She doesn't want to talk to you on the phone. She wants to FaceTime you and see you. That's how she expects to have a conversation with people. So it is interesting. But that has, that has real implications for the future of it does, yeah. that generation. So kind of getting into your, yeah, to answer your question, I think, you know, it is it is definitely a full-time job, and I think it doesn't necessarily have to be a millennial per se, but I think, uh, you know, I think they're definitely, they have a different perspective on how that technology can, um, you know, they can see through, through some things, I think, where others maybe, you know, don't, um, just because they're so used to dealing with some of these, these tools. Um, so it is interesting, but it is, it is most definitely a full-time job, I think. Um, it is not something that you'd want to just kind of dip your toe in because if you dip your toe in and then leave, 
it's it's kind of like you've just you're, you're vacant you know you've you've left it's almost like you've moved out of your store <laughs> is kind of how it almost kind of compared to but I mean if you're gonna and that's why I would say you can't do them all and you can't do them all well if you don't have the capacity to do so so you'd rather just do one and do it really well than try to do all of them um, where's the best place do you think for a retailer who's trying to figure this out to start is it Facebook is it Instagram I think it depends on their audience I think if um, if their audience if they think their audience tends to skew a little bit Older, I'd say you know Facebook is probably a, a good bet to get to get that audience as well as maybe expose themselves to uh, maybe a slightly younger audience uh, that that might have the purchasing power to come to the store and, and transact. Uh, I'd say overall, I think Instagram is certainly the most. Uh, it's the fastest growing. It's visual, so it's just a lot easier. And it's I mean, it's just, people love looking at images of things. So. You know they can, and you can do video and stuff. You can tell you know do stories and stuff. It definitely probably skews a little younger than Facebook does, um, but it's just so it's so visual, and it's you know they're it's the same company, if you will, the same entity that's kind of wrapped around both. So in a way, you might say that there's an opportunity, um, you know, to do to do both of them and, and maybe do them well, um, depending on you know maybe you have a slightly different story that you're going to do over here on Facebook, depending on what you're talking about, and maybe you try to do some of the things for you know, your younger audience on Instagram. But I'd say those two are, you know, I'd say those are the most crucial if you're gonna build a, a social strategy around. I think those are the ones you wanna to try to hang your hat on. Convenience is a critical factor in today's customer shopping journey. In fact, PR Web states that 87% of customers will abandon the checkout process if it's too difficult. What convenience means is constantly evolving, and Storis is too. We release new products every year and a new feature set in our core platform every six months so that your business is on the cutting edge of customer demand. Our new customer-facing credit application is designed to speed up the financing process while adding convenience to the application. We'll be debuting this new technology at the upcoming Las Vegas Summer Market. You can visit us on the 10th floor of Building B in the HFA's Retailer Resource Center or learn more by requesting a demo on stores.com today. I'm Caitlin Jazuski. Thanks for listening. You talked about being authentic and understanding who you are. I think for a lot of furniture stores, they've had a sense of who they are historically. Yeah. Does who they are, who they were, or who they are historically change when you're competing in a digital environment? Do you have to kind of? I mean, how do you make that translation from who we are, your local neighborhood store, whatever your given attributes are in the physical world, competing against other furniture stores in your area, to who we are in a digital world when I have to get your attention in a much different environment? Yeah, I think it's still about how do you how do you make that authenticity come to life. You know, through social media, you know, and that could be, it can be hokey if that's, you know, if that works. Uh, but I think it's it's real. It's it's where it it's not some custom, overly produced spot. It might be something that they're shooting with a phone. That you know, it's thirty seconds, but they're going to give you something that is a reason to engage with them. You know, um, and whatever that is. Now, ideally, before you just start randomly shooting stuff with your phone. You know, you, you maybe sit down and think about well, what are, what is it that is kind of unique to us? What are some things that we do on a weekly basis in the store that are fun? Uh, how can we bring those little bits, you know, and put them online and, and make them digestible for somebody to maybe get a little bit of insight as to what it is that we offer? Um, but um, you know, I, I think it. it um, I don't want people to think about this or take this the wrong way, but you know, things like you know, if you're watching TV, sometimes you see you know it's the local spot. 
and some of those are good, and some of them are not. Um, and I think you know, you know which are the good ones and which are the bad ones. So I think it's a matter of all right. Well, again, kind of going back to who you are, what works, what works in your marketplace, and how can you how can you make again those tools go to work for you? And can you you know can you lean on some partners that might have some things that can make you look a little better without having to you know spend a lot of money locally? You know, like we try to have a lot of that content in in bite-sized chunks for people to kind of lean on and, and leverage accordingly so they don't have to go do it on their own and they can just kind of pull something in from, from us. Um, so I think it's just a matter of you know thinking through it. But I think the more authentic you can be, and again, you don't have to make it long. It just needs to be a little something. And then I think there's the consistency factor of whatever that is, whatever it is that you want to try to do on a, you know, a weekly basis. If it's two times a week, if it's one time a week, whatever it is, just hammer it out, you know, really plan it accordingly. It doesn't mean you have to do something every day, you know, but I think, I think ideally it's one time a week. It's just something that is, is impactful enough to where somebody wants to, you know, either look at it or, you know, watch a 30 second something on something that's new going on in the store, or maybe it's a service that they offer that no one really has any idea and they've done it for a hundred years, you know, who knows? So I think those are all things to kind of think through. It seemed like early on in this whole digital maelstrom that we've gone through the last couple of years, there was a big focus on virality, and there was this belief that you could create virality, right? It was cute pictures of cats, yeah, or yeah. Some, some little meme. Um, more and more, though, it seems like you need to buy virality, that there is a cost associated. It's not just being cute, but you have to understand Google advertising, Google AdWords. You need to understand how to work Facebook's algorithm, how yeah. to work Instagram's algorithm, and it's not just about... So how do you manage in that, in that space? I mean, are there tip, tips, strategies, things that you can do, whether it's connecting with micro-influencers or other folks? Well, I think, I think the influencers are a big, actually, a big opportunity. Every, every marketplace, um, you know, every area has, has some people, I think, that, that probably already have a large reach, if you will. Um, I know we work with influencers all the time. It's, a, it's another way of somebody telling that story for us without us, you know, trying to to push it, um, and you know, I think it's setting the expectations for what what that's going to look like in advance. Uh, but it's another way of kind of, you know, it's like your best customers just, you know, it's almost like word of mouth, but it's done socially. I'd, I'd say, you know, and it's like, how can you make that real and authentic? Um, and ideally, it, it will be if you're picking the right people um, who are truly you know, um, brand enthusiasts for whatever it is that you do. And they want to tell people about it because they just have a, such a great time every time they interact with whatever that is. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. And, and I, I think that's just part part of kind of sitting down and thinking about what's that plan look like. And, and that, I, I always tell, you know, uh, like our, our sales force and, you know, even, you know, usually I tell our sales force, but, um, you know, you, you can't wait to start something until everything's perfect because it's never going to be perfect. So you got to figure out, okay, how do we get going on something and then ultimately build it to where you want it, to where it's it's scalable and you can measure it, you know, and, um, you know, you're getting something out of it. But but don't wait for everything to be absolutely, oh, it's all right, everything is just sealed, it's signed, now you can begin. It's just never going to, you'd be waiting forever. So I, I think for a lot of these people, I think a lot of this stuff, while it seems it seems very daunting of, oh, I need to wait to get this done. I need to get this done. Okay, you need to get going. You can't just sit there and wait because every day you're not engaging. I think in some of these areas, you're really kind of missing out on ultimately making a connection with, with somebody to come in. So, But that doesn't mean you have to try to do it all. And I think that's the overwhelming part. So I think it's a matter of, all right, 
let's think about how do you know what's the most important things to our business. You know, it's probably our store, our website, and then pick a social channel as just a baseline. And then okay, Google AdWords. You know, um, you know things. That, Facebook. Do we want to get involved in there? You know, digital advertising, social advertising. You know, but. You need some blocking and tackling pieces, but don't wait for everything to be, oh, my website has to be absolutely perfect. I think, what do you want your website to do for you? You know, ultimately, you know, if you don't sell on your website, then you want them to come into your store. So what are the things that you can put on your website to get them to come into the store? So there's all these things that people, I think, you know, just, you know, that I know they probably all think about every single day. And it's a matter of, okay, well, what, do we, what do we need to do? And I think on some of these instances, it's a matter of, hey, you know what? If I can't do it, if I don't have the time or the resources internally, do I want to work with a third party that can help support the website for me? And, and a lot of those third parties, they work with all different kinds of manufacturers and they, they can flow all that information in and it's, it might cost them a little bit more, but it's a, maybe more of a set it and leave it strategy for something like the web. So. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of different ways to kind of spin that. One of the challenges I think a lot of retailers have is they hear people say you have to have a seamless experience, your web, your social media, all needs to reflect your store and it needs to be consistent. And I'm not quite sure that from a tactical standpoint, everyone always understands what that means, right? Are there, I mean, when you try to create that seamless experience or if you were advising a retailer to try to create that consistent look, how do you create that across all of those platforms? Uh, a lot of it might just be the, you know, the the tone of of the the copy. Um, you know, does it sound like how you want your store to sound? Does it sound like when somebody walks into the store and somebody says hello? Does it does it kind of speak back to that? Uh, I think a lot of it also has to do with the imagery that you're using. You know, is it is it consistent across the the, the spectrum there? You know, I think and then. Uh, how can I lean on partners to help maybe make that imagery the way I want it, you know, and it doesn't necessarily have to be something that I'm going to go shoot if I can lean on, you know, a, a vendor uh, that can supply me with, with good imagery to help support what we're doing. So I think, I think those, those are probably the simplest ways to do it. But I think if you look at, you know, and everybody probably has some brands that they, that they like and they, and they follow, I would, and if you, if you have some brands you like, I would definitely, you know, and you know you transact with them, I would, you know, check out their website, Check out what they do on Instagram. Check out what they kind of emails you know that they're sending you. You know what do they look like? How do they feel? How do they talk to you that makes you want to transact with them? What are the things that kind of you know kind of rise up and make you want to you know uh, reach for your credit card or wallet? So um, and you might find that oh this isn't really that complicated for what we do. I think it's just a, you can make it super complicated, but um, you know I think it's just a matter of all right well let's just kind of take one thing at a time um, and and ultimately you know put. Uh, put something in place that you know you can cons consistently execute and that's kind of you know the execution of all of this is really where the rubber meets the road it's, it's great to have all these ideas you know up against the wall but if you can't go do any of it it doesn't really matter so um, you know I think that's kind of a, a big a big thing and that's kind of where I talk about do you have the the resources or scalability inside your own business to go you know what can you what can you do and it's just a matter of all right let's get started and and chip away at this. And I would, you know, if I'm a retailer, I'm going to try to lean on those partners that we do a lot of business with to help me fill in some of those some of those holes, if you will, and uh, and just you know have some conversations with them. Hey, what what what's going on? You know, um, what works for you? What works for you? Yeah. How can we how can we you know leverage some of that you know um, at a local level? So. Yeah. My guest this week is Neil McKenzie, director of marketing at Universal Furniture. Um, let's talk a little bit about you as a person. You sure. Have one daughter. I have one daughter. Um, 
She's, what do you do for fun? What do you what do you do when you're not a brilliant marketing director yeah, uh, um, for one of the furniture I'd, industry's largest? I think for for uh, yeah for fun, I'd say I love to play golf. Um, I'm shocked by that. Yeah, it's surprising. I love to walk uh, when I play golf. Um, I like to to walk and play golf. For me, those two go together. <laughs> usually, yeah. walking off the course to so, find my ball. I'm um, a big fan of, of that kind of experience. Of I'd say uh, I find it to be more authentic. Uh, just you know, walking and you know you're with a, a small group and you know you're talking and stuff and um, and playing golf. So I love that. Uh, I'm from Massachusetts. I'm an avid, um, more or less, maybe uh, obsessed and and probably to an extreme. I have an issue, but. Um, I'm a huge uh, Boston sports fan. Um, I kind of have a Red Sox, Patriots. Yeah, massive Patriots fan. Uh, Red Sox. My mom's uh, uncle was traveling secretary for the Red Sox for 50 years. Um, so, um, fortunately, my grandfather and him, and actually all my grandparents, were able to see the Red Sox win. That was a big deal in 2004. Um, and then uh, it's been a good run for, for us. Uh, we just lost the Stanley Cup, uh, and I've gotten a lot of grief from people about that, but uh, hopefully we'll come back and get something else here soon. So I'd say those are the things that uh, my wife and I... Celtics? Uh, yeah, oh yeah. In fact, it was, it's funny, uh, I was telling my daughter this growing up, because you know, uh, when I grew up, the Celtics were kind of in their prime for, for me in the mid-80s and stuff. You so know. you grew up in the Larry Bird. Larry Bird, Robert Kevin McHale, 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 McHale yep, yep, Danny Ainge, and um, you know. Walton. The Walton, uh, the Chief, um, they had some great players on that team, and uh, and were kind of characters. And so it's social media has changed the, the Laker, way all this stuff. The Laker-Boston rivalry. Yes, back then were absolutely. Um, I had a great story. I was uh, my mom's friend won this uh, thing through a local grocery store. Uh, I think it was eleven or twelve years old, and. Uh, the thing was you got to go to the Boston Garden. This wasn't the new Boston Garden, this was the Boston Garden. So you got to go to the Boston Garden and they had this um, restaurant underneath the Boston Gar Garden called uh, Boards and Blades. So it was this hole in the wall bar. Um, so you got to go in um, to have lunch and then you went down to the parquet floor and you got to do this shoot around and ML Carr was there. So um, he was kind of feeding people the ball and stuff and, and I won this free throw competition there. But you had the entire wow. place was empty so you got to walk up to all these areas of the garden. I went with my dad. It was it was so cool. So I remember it was yesterday. So um, yeah, the Celtics were awesome. And then um, you know they kind of phased out. And I remember um, you know the Red Sox have always been kind of they were chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. And then you know they've they've obviously you know found their way a little bit. And then you know the uh, the Patriots. Everyone always gives me grief. The Patriots always win. But I remember when the games were blacked out. Uh, I went to school, high school, uh, with John Hanna's son, uh, who played for the Patriots in the 80s, uh, was, uh, went to Alabama, uh, probably the greatest offensive lineman that ever played, possibly. But um, So, you know, the Patriots were, for a period of time, they were just horrible, you I know? I remember. And, I remember the Steve Grogan Patriots. Yeah, Patriots. so, and the old um, Foxborough Stadium, the steel benches, they didn't have seats. So... Um, you know, obviously, I think it's been it's been remarkable um, just to see how that all has unfolded. So it's really cool. So we, I've, I think, I have not literally missed a Patriots game since 1993. <laughs> so in some way, so that's what I mean. It's it's a bit of a sickness, but but I enjoy it. So that's the, I don't know if that's fun. I don't really sometimes don't find it fun, but <laughs> it's fun when they win. It's, yeah. So and, and if you're a real fan, it's miserable when yeah. you so, um, and then uh, my wife and I we love to go out and eat and have a couple drinks and um, like to travel here and there uh, we go uh, a lot up to uh, Cape Cod 
um, and then uh, love to love to go to nice warm places specifically if I can. So yeah. So your daughter is being uh, coached to be a New England. Uh, she has already. So that's, uh, that's tough. Yeah, Maybe that's. You're in North Carolina. Yeah. she's growing up. You know, so away from all of those. Teams. It is. So I think I think I've accomplished that already. Uh, so I think if you ask her, she she would know uh, everything that's kind of going on. Uh, she wears her Patriots garb to school. Uh, some kids have said th- some things to her, which is interesting. Um, there's a couple stories that I won't share that are that are kind of funny, but. Um, so, um, but no, she's she's very prideful in it. She's she and I have watched a lot of the games. Uh, she got to stay up for her first Super Bowl, uh, this last one, and uh, that was successful. So that was good. And um, yeah, she's she's pretty into it now. She takes it pretty seriously. So I think I'm I've succeeded there. Um, on the golf side, I, I take her out with me, and she uh, I I teach her pretty much how to hold the club. I tee it up everywhere for her. And I don't say anything else. And then I heard this great story, uh, actually, on uh, Rory McIlroy, uh, his dad. So when Rory was growing up, his dad would change the pars of the holes uh, to be something that was more obtainable. So if the first hole is a par four, uh, Rory's dad would make it a par 12. So very quickly, his son got used to shooting something under the par of the hole. And just psychologically, it kind of changed your perspective sure, of a sense of accomplishment and sense yeah of a sense of defeat exactly so it was really interesting just to kind of see to see that so I've, I started doing that with my daughter I just let her make up whatever number she wanted to make up for you know whatever the part of the hole is and you know if the first hole she goes par 13 she made a 12 I go you're one under so she was all excited about about that so we'll see if that leads itself into anything we'll sub- have to come substantial back 10 years from now we'll have this conversation I hope so LPGA tour. I hope so so anyway but yeah so uh, it's been it's she it's fun you know what's great about golf is you're outside um, you know I think you get to go see some really beautiful places all around the world um, typically you know you should be with people that you want to spend you know four hours with <laughs> um, and um, yeah I think it's just it's a it's a game that is such a there's a physical and mental side to it that's that's just a constant challenge and um, you know I think you can you can take it as seriously as you want in terms of you know it's almost like uh, you know kind of working out it's it's almost like you know it's gonna be as hard as you want to make it so um. have you heard the story of Sam Snead and Ted Williams debating which was more difficult hitting a golf ball I have yeah and uh, yeah um, one was not I think uh, Sam's well you know the, the golf ball is not moving I think is what uh, the golf ball's not go- moving, yeah. but in baseball, you don't have to play your foul balls. Right, exactly. Yeah, so, um, and they're both pretty good. <laughs> not bad. Yeah, so. Well, thanks for joining us this week. I really appreciate the time. I hope you enjoyed being in I the did. Chair. I did, yeah. Thanks for your time, and yeah, I appreciate, uh, appreciate the opportunity. Again, my guest is Neil McKenzie, Director of Marketing for Universal Furniture. Uh, if you have anything you'd like to ask Neil, send me an email, and I'll be glad to pass it along. Until next week, I'm Bill McLaughlin with Furniture Today. Thanks for joining us.